people who follow me on the equipment side know that I'm all about I'm all about chasing the marginal gains and I don't care if it looks stupid or if it makes me look like a tryhard. I am a tryhard. I try hard at bike racing. So, and I'm unapologetic about being a tryhard. What's up, everybody, and welcome to the Stable Cyclist Podcast. My name is JP, and today we have Dylan Johnson on the podcast. Before we get to Dylan, today's podcast is brought to you by Flow Formulas. If you are training for a big race, or even if you're just training to stay healthy, and you want to feel your best every day on the bike, then Flow Formulas Endurance Mix and Recovery Mix have your name all over them. Personally, I am a heavy sweater, and so I cannot go without throwing the high-sodium mix into my cart when I'm at Flow Formulas, as well as the chocolate recovery mix. And if you've got a cart full of goodies, you can use the code JOHNPETER15 at checkout to get a little discount on that cart full of goods. As I said, our guest today is Dylan Johnson. He is, of course, YouTube sensation, a professional gravel and mountain bike racer. He is a member of the Lifetime Grand Prix racing for Felt United. And we have a lot to get into today. But one more thing before we dive into the show. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please do us a favor and go ahead and give us a five-star review, please. And thank you. All right. Enough of all that. Let's get Dylan in the studio. Well, Dylan Johnson... It is awesome that you can join us, and we will. I, I get things going all the time with just how are how are you doing, and what are you up to, uh, and what races are coming up for you in the near future. Sure. Well, I I don't know when people are going to be listening to this, but we are recording here at the end of February. Um, thanks for having me on. By the way, as as far as right now goes, my season has not started. But it is right around the corner. First race for me is going to be Mid-South, Mid-March. Um, and then just like last year, I'm kind of focusing on the Lifetime Grand Prix Series. And I plan to attend all seven of those. The first one of those will be Sea Otter Mid-April. So I'm kind of in my A base training phase right now. Uh, my base training phase will end at Mid-South. So I'm not going to be peaking or anything for Mid-South, but then hopefully come sea otter and unbound i'll be in top shape awesome how many races outside of the lifetime grand prix are you actually looking at this year um not too many i i don't like to over race i find that if i race too much in a season i start performing badly in races um so i keep it pretty minimal i think the ones that i have on the calendar that are not lifetime grand prix are mid-south uh bwr north carolina gravel locos uh might do steamboat maybe do that little sugar mountain bike race and that's that'd probably be it uh i do have i do have local gravel races that i may or may not do i usually decide whether i want to do those as a training race the week of so okay right on it's still a yeah. lot it still sounds like an action-packed schedule for you this year let's go from like zero never riding a bike to pro license um or some iteration of being a pro tell us your background how did you get into racing bikes mm -hmm. sure so i i think when i was 12 years old my dad got a mountain bike for me for it was either my birthday or christmas or something and i started he mountain biked i started riding with him 
and I think I did my first race when I was 14, and I would say that by the age of 15 or 16, I was taking it pretty seriously, uh, and I was training a lot. I was actively trying to figure out how to get faster. I didn't know a lot about training at the time, so I was doing a lot of things wrong at the time, but I was trying. And by the time I got to college, I, you know, a lot of people freshman year of college, they don't really know what they want to do. I was already like, just sign me up for the exercise science major. (laughs) So I, I didn't know that I wanted to be a cycling coach, but all I cared about was bike racing. So I was like, that major is the closest thing that'll get me faster on faster sure. at riding a bike. So, um, I pretty, I, I kind of had it figured out from day one at college. And then I started working for CTS immediately after college. And it wasn't long after that, that I started my YouTube channel, which for those who are unfamiliar with my YouTube channel, it's it's very much cycling coaching related content. I have started doing more racing content recently, but traditionally it's been science-based coaching content. Uh, I started that, I think when I was 23 years old, and um, it wasn't long after starting that YouTube channel that I left CTS and kind of started doing my own thing. Um, and that's... And as far as racing goes, I've throughout that entire time period, I was racing seriously, but it's only been in the past couple of years that I've been able to make my make racing a big enough source of income that I would actually call it a job uh, at this point. Like if somebody asked me what I do today, one of the things that I will tell them is that I'm a professional gravel racer, I guess. Um so I, I think I'm very lucky that my kind of my career has coincided with gravel just exploding in popularity. And it just so happens that gravel is a discipline of cycling that I naturally gravitated to and I, I naturally enjoy. So um, I think the industry really getting behind gravel and me getting behind gravel has has kind of helped me out with that. So maybe a more accurate arc of your story is looking at the coaching piece of it, looking at mm-hmm. where you were at in college. You go to college, you get your or you chase exercise science because it's the closest thing to bike racing they have. At any point mm-hmm. along the way, as you're pursuing exercise science and eventually coaching, are you thinking like this is going to allow me to eventually race? the way that you do or was it solely like this is the closest thing I can get and so this is what I want to do so I think that since I've since I was 15 years old probably my dream has always been to be a professional bike racer to get paid for racing my bike and it's very hard to make that happen. Uh, so obviously I had plan B and I think plan B was just to be a full on full-time coach. Um, and then at least I would still be doing something that I love doing, which has to do with bike racing. Um, but yeah, I would say that plan A and my, my dream as a teenager was to be, to, to get paid to race my bike. And I would say that there was a, there was a, decent chunk of time where I thought that that would probably never happen. Um, 
I was just kind of at the level where I had some sponsors, but they weren't really paying me. They were just sort of, you know, I was getting free bikes, but not much more than that. Or maybe I'd get, you know, race expenses covered, but that's obviously not going to pay the bills. Um, you were kind of in the like and, uh, offsetting your hobby costs mode. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, 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 and, and, and I was, I was coaching, I was coaching to make money and I was still keeping up racing, which is something that a lot of people do. And, and I mean, I still coach and race, but, um, I would say n- the number one goal since I was a teenager was racing. Okay. So you, you get down with college, you kind of move into CTS as a coach because you have to, in order to kind of mm-hmm. keep your head above water as a human being and pay the bills. At what point did mm-hmm. you realize like what I'm doing here at CTS isn't working and I need to maybe figure out my own way to do this. Yeah. So I, I was not a full-time employee at CTS. I was a independent contractor and I'm going to be honest. Like, part of the reason why you would choose to work for a coaching company as opposed to working for yourself is because they are going to do all the marketing for you. And then all you have to do is coach. Um, you don't have to promote yourself. They give you clients. They take a percentage, but the the upside is that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to put yourself out there. You just get the clients. And I'm, I'm I mean, I'm going to be honest, the CTS was not giving me a whole lot of clients. I I remember the first summer that I grad after I graduated from college, uh, I maybe had five or six clients total, which was at the time I don't know five or six hundred dollars a month coming in. It was very a very small amount, and I actually remember during that time I was chasing the National Ultra Endurance Series, which is a hundred mile mountain bike race series. Um, and prize money for winning those races was between 500 and a thousand dollars and i remember thinking i need to go there and win that race so that i can <laughs> pay rent next month <laughs> um that didn't last I, I i wasn't living like that for that long though that was about maybe two months right after i graduated college that it, that it was that that hairy but um i i kind of fi- had had to find a way to market myself, even though I was working for CTS, which is is kind of where I got the idea to start doing the YouTube channel. Um, and the YouTube channel, I got my first relatively viral video. Uh, viral is all relative to how big your channel is, but relative for me, viral video pretty quickly. Uh, about two months in, I did a video on on Zwift training plans, and a lot of a lot of people thought that was great and it got a lot of views and it kind of got the ball rolling on that channel and it wasn't it wasn't too long before I was able to fill up my coaching roster and then at a certain point I just decided I don't I don't need CTS there's no reason for them to take a cut when I can do all the marketing myself I mean that is the main reason why somebody would choose to work for CTS in the first place so um I left CTS uh, probably a year after I started the YouTube channel. Um, so 
this is probably in 2018-ish. Uh, no, no, that would be 2019, 2020. Um, I think I left in 2020 uh, because I think the pandemic was going on while I was leaving CTS. There was a lot of things happening. So, um, <laughs> uh, And then I, I started my own coaching company, and it actually wasn't long after that that I started uh, Ignition with Drew Dillman um, because I... I got so many requests from people to to be their coach. I mean, I just simply can't coach this many people. So, you know, that's what we've done at Ignition is is we've kind of started our own CTS. Right, right. Uh, so let's talk about that YouTube video. Uh, you you do your original video, and it's a weightlifting video, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and it's. Uh, it's it's low budget uh quality and i know i've heard you say that too yeah (laughs) it's you standing in front of a cts sign the audio is not great but the info is good Mm -hmm. and like two months later like you said february 2019 you you uh go after zwift and uh i think i looked today it's over three hundred thousand views and Mm. at at what point were you kind of like what the hell is going on here like this is a this is more than just uh making a video for fun and i guess i want to hear your motivation behind your original video and like what your plan was long term with it yeah i don't like watching videos of mine that are that old because i cringe when i watch them um there's multiple things that i'm cringing at i'm cringing at the terrible quality and the poor editing and the terrible sound quality and and all of it and my my presence in front of a camera was not that well refined at that point so I was a bit awkward on camera um if if you've I, people watch a lot of youtube nowadays but if you've never set up a camera and then tried to talk to it with no one else in the room it is actually a very it's a skill to be able to do that because it's not like having a conversation with a person. Um, and I, I think that comes across in those earlier videos. But but regardless, I think even in that first video, I, to- I had zero subscribers and I was telling people to subscribe to my channel and like the video or <laughs> whatever, yep. doing the yep. YouTube thing, right? So clearly I had intentions of growing it. Uh, I didn't know how big I would grow it. I don't. I didn't know if I would quit after two months because no one was watching, or if it would blow up. But I, I, I didn't know. I was just kind of experimenting with things. Uh, but I had the intention, even in the first video, of growing the YouTube channel. Sure. Um, and I remember I was I was really motivated to make videos at that point. I was I was doing. Now, the videos were much lower quality, so they were easier to make. But I, I think when I first started, I was doing almost two videos a week. Uh, I was just knocking them out. And, of course, at that point, I hadn't cover, covered – I had a long list of topics, and I hadn't covered any of them, right? Well, and you <laughs> so, only had four people to so, coach, so you had a lot of free time. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. So uh, – and the time – I started the channel in my off season, right? So I wasn't even training that much. I, I did. That is not an. That is not an understatement. I did have a lot of free time on my hands at that that time in my life. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was I was just knocking out these vi- these videos. Um, 
I would say for the first two months, maybe around, they would average around 100 or 200 views per video, which I was actually happy with. I was like, yeah, I mean, triple digits. That's kind of cool that this many people are watching this. Um, and then that Zwift video, it, it, like I said, it quickly, I think that, uh, I think after a week it had 30,000 views or something. And I mean, when you've been getting a hundred to 200 views, 30,000 is crazy and it's blowing your mind. Um, and uh, I think that every YouTuber can remember that first viral video that they hit and it, it feels really good at the time. Um, and it's very motivating. Uh, I, you know, again, at that time I was already highly motivated to make videos, but then that happened and I was, I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is my new thing. I'm going to be a, cycling youtuber <laughs> sure so what, what was your men what so, was your yeah. mentality like at that time you know like even when you were getting a hundred hits you're putting a ton of effort and time into these videos were you hitting publish mm -hmm. and like sitting and watching what it would do were you stressed about it or was it like set it and go for a bike ride and forget about it no i i i was i was watching the analytics and I think most YouTubers will tell you that when they, the YouTube, for people who don't know, YouTube keeps so many analytics about your videos. It's crazy the amount of analytics that they have. Um, and I, I studied that stuff way more when I first started the channel than I do now. I mean, I barely look at the analytics now. Um, I, every once in a while, I'll go into the analytics and I'll, I'll, try to see how the channel's doing or try to see how videos are doing. But I, I remember when I first started the channel, I was, I was looking at watch time. I was looking at, I was looking at, um, click through rate, all of this and, and trying to improve it. Um, and I got, I, you know, people who know me know that I can get pretty geeked out on certain things that I'm passionate about. And I got pretty geeked out about YouTube analytics for, for a minute there. Um, I would have been shocked if I, you said, no, I didn't really pay any attention. I figured you went on a full deep dive into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, that. so at this point, I I still, I obviously I look to see how the video is doing uh, and I, I read the comments and um, I'll, I'll look at the analytics, but I'm not, I'm not obsessing over analytics at this point. And I would say, I think one thing too, is that I'm, I'm less so chasing a video that I think will get a lot of views and more so chasing videos that I want to make, yeah. um, or that I think are interesting. So for sure. And I actually think that, that people that surprisingly people have found them interesting too. And it's not like the views have gone down. In fact, if anything, I think people recognize that you're passionate about something and they, they become passionate about it. Yeah. Our, our passions tend to drive our best work. And so, um, mm -hmm. yeah, as, as uh, nerdy as some of your videos have been in the last 12 months, especially they've been really well done. So yeah, appreciate yeah no it. problem. At, at what point were you sitting there and realizing like, I think this is part of my job. Like I can make money off of this and this is part <laughs> of what I do. Yeah, I mean, it was not long after I started the YouTube channel that people started coming to me for coaching. 
and it was before the Zwift video. Um, you know, some of the 100 to 200 people that were watching my videos thought that I knew enough about training that they wanted me as a coach. So it was not it was not long after I started the channel that I, I wasn't even getting paid ad revenue, but I realized that this was this was a way to make money, uh, even if it was just as a way to advertise my coaching. And then, of course, you get to a point where uh, the videos themselves are making money because of YouTube ad revenue. Um, that's not a... Even at this point, with with the amount of views that I get on my channel, that's not a huge portion of my income, but it is it is still something. Sure. So... At some point in there, this alter ego of you develops named Backwards Hat Dylan that I think <laughs> a lot of people are really, I mean, I'm entertained by him too, but why did you feel the need to develop him? Was it just that you had this serious content and it was at times a little bit dry, even though nerds like me were really digging it? Or were you knowing like, this is what people in the comments are making fun of me about? I'm going to self-deprecate ahead of time and just beat him to it? Or what What was the motivation for this character that eventually puts out the Spirit of Gravel video, which is one of the greatest things I've ever seen for entertainment value on YouTube? <laughs> I appreciate that. Um... Yeah, I the very first videos don't have backwards hat Dylan, right. but I think I think even I don't know if the Zwift I'll, I'll be honest I don't remember if the Zwift video had backwards hat Dylan or not. It might have or it might not have, but it wasn't long after the channel started that backwards hat Dylan started popping up. Um, yeah, I mean, so, some of I I it was not lost on me that some of my videos were very dry. And, um, if you weren't completely geeked out about whatever I was talking about, it might be boring to watch. Uh, so I was like, well, what, what can I do to spice this up a little bit? And I wanted to add humor into it. And I think that I didn't even necessarily intend for say backwards hat Dylan to become a character, but in one video, I wrote in some humorous rebuttals to whatever I was saying. And while I was out in my studio recording the video, I decided, let me put my hat on backwards for these parts so that people can differentiate between me being serious and me being funny, right? Um, and so that was a that was a decision that I made in the studio while I was recording the video. It wasn't really planned out. And then that the first time I did that, there were comments under that video saying, you know, this backwards hat guy needs to become a regular or something, or he was hilarious. Or so I just kept doing it, and it's sort of become a staple of the channel now. And I think I think that that character what that character represents is the guy that we all know on the group ride who's overly confident um but but it's it's the it's the person that's constantly chasing strava segments um is 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 constantly trying to buy speed but doesn't want to train um you know maybe uh it, Maybe the person that's taking themselves too seriously. I find that there is a lot of 
taking yourself too seriously and cycling in general. And I, I think that the backwards hat character is kind of trying to combat that. Um, cause at any time in my videos where I'm kind of taking myself too seriously, I like to, I like to have the backwards hat character do a little bit of a rebuttal just to remind people like, Hey, I, I, I am, I am geeking out about this right now, but I, it's not lost on me that I look like a total nerd, <laughs> uh to probably 99 percent of people right now so i think that that character is helpful for, for the channel to just kind of uh kind of ma make it more relatable but also just keep the ego in check well for sure and i feel sometimes he's almost making fun of the me or the person watching the video because we're all there watching these very sciencey videos trying to squeeze a watt out of you know whatever and he's mm -hmm. you know basically making fun of us as we sit there even though he's kind of an idiot himself and so it's it's just fantastic right. it's such it's been such a great piece every week to look forward to when he's going to interject so talk me through talk me through your decision to go you said you went your big first hit was a Zwift video mm -hmm. talk me through the decision to go after trainer road directly because like almost exactly two years after the Zwift video, um, it was February two years later on Valentine's Day, you go after Trainer Road. And you had been hinting a little bit that something like this might be coming um, because you had mm -hmm. been, you had done a polarized versus sweet spot video. And, you know, kind of everybody was like, dude, just come out and say it. Like, we know what you're really talking <laughs> about here. And sure enough, you, you did right. it. And again, that was a, a huge video. But yep. what what was the thought process to, to kind of go after a specific company? Because if you go after them, now you've gone after like the two premier online platforms for training and you've basically cut mm -hmm. them both to pieces. So yeah, tell yeah. me all about that. Yeah, I, I think the... The Zwift video, I would say almost everyone agreed with me because you can just look at look at a Zwift workout and it doesn't take a professional coach to realize that this, like the the zones are all over the place. They have you do, like the, the workouts they have you do are completely ridiculous. Yeah. And it, it really doesn't take a professional coach to realize that. Um, Trainer Road has some diehard fans though. So I... I I did realize that it was a little bit more risky to blatantly call out Trainer Road. And I think that it was somebody had watched my Polarized versus Sweet Spot video and reached out to me and asked me, what do you think? I they, they said, I want you to look specifically at these Trainer Road plans because they seem to contradict everything that you're saying in your videos. And I want you to look at them and... Tell me what you think of them. And this person wasn't necessarily saying, do a video on this. They were just saying, I want you to look at these plans and tell me what you think. And I remember, because you, you have to pay for Trainer Road to even see these plans in the first place, which I had not done, because I'm not going to, that's not how I'm going to spend my money when I'm a professional coach myself. Yeah. Um, but I... I remember I actually took a look at the plans um, and I took a look at the workouts and I was like, yeah, I, the, the, this is the opposite of everything that I've been saying, particularly in the polarized versus sweet spot um, video. And 
What's funny is that I, I had listened to the Trainer Road podcast before, and and I think that was back when they had uh, Chad on quite frequently, yeah. and it was it was a very science based podcast. You know, constantly re- referencing studies. I was I was kind of a fan. I was thinking this is this is a good podcast, and then I remembered seeing their plans and just thinking they market themselves as a science-based company and these plans are not science-based just to put it bluntly they're just not if you were if you look at the research these plans do not represent what the research is showing optimal training should look like and so i was like i I gotta make a video about this (laughs) and uh i made a video about it it was actually you know, it, it's probably one of my more controversial videos just because of the diehard trainer road fans. But to be honest, most people were on my, at least in my own comments section, were on my side and they, they were like, yeah, Dylan, you're right. I have, I have overtrained, um, using trainer road. And so my main criticism of trainer road at the time was that they, they prescribed too much intensity and they were a very sweet spot heavy plan, so they they just had people doing sweet spot workouts very frequently, oftentimes four or five times a week, which I just think is too frequent if you actually look at the research. And I I was suggesting that if you were to follow these these plans to a T, then you would probably hit a point of burnout and overtraining. And after I put out that video, I had to put up a automatic reply on my email saying, <laughs> I'm getting too many emails. I cannot respond to your email. I'm sorry. Like not I'll respond later. I've just, I'm not going to be able to respond. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't respond to your email there. If you were to count all the people in my own comment section on the trainer road forum, who emailed me, who DM'd me who said something to the effect of, I used Trainer Road and I got overtrained, or I used Trainer Road and I got burnt out, it's it's probably in the quadruple digits at this point. And that's just the people who took the time out of their day to write about it somewhere on the internet. So when, when people ask me about that video and ask me, you know, do you would you if you could go back would you still do that video absolutely i i think that trainer road 100 percent deserved deserved that video um i i i think they weren't following the research and and that video was actually much needed and i know that they've made some changes since i think they've introduced some polarized plans people have asked me to take a look at that i I don't know. I, I don't necessarily feel like I need to open that can of worms again, but I, I am actually pretty proud of that video. If you, so by the time you made that video, you were pretty confident in your body of work and you had a really strong research process. If you would have told, mm-hmm. or if somebody would have told you two or three, three years earlier, especially, hey, you're going to like make a video going after these two huge platforms and it's it's gonna they're gonna go big would you have been like scared would you like laughed at the person what like how did you go from 
that person who hasn't made YouTube videos to being like, I'm going to go after these giants and I'm going to be proud of it. And it's the right thing to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would have been, I don't know. I don't know that I would have been scared. Um, but I will say that when I first started doing YouTube, I was very careful to, um, uh, what's the right word here? I I just, you know, when when you're first putting stuff out online for people people to publicly consume, you're very conscious about not stepping on people's toes because all it takes is one negative comment for you to rethink everything that you're doing, yeah. right? So in those in those first couple of videos, somebody might comment. You say something, and then somebody comments, "Hey, well, actually, this." And then you're like, oh, man, you know, I, I'm such an idiot. I shouldn't have said that. And it, it kind of takes a while for you to, to build up the confidence to, uh, you know, ignore those comments if they're not constructive and, and build up, I guess, a bit of a thicker skin. So the Trainer Road video, it, the interesting thing is the Zwift video, I would say almost everyone who watched that video right, was on my right. side and no one was defending Zwift. The Trainer Road video, I don't think is a video that I could have made in my first year on YouTube for a number of reasons. One, I don't think I was ready for it. And two, I don't think I had the catalog of videos built up for anybody to take me seriously. Like sure. I'm just some guy on the internet spouting off about Trainer Road. Sure, that totally makes sense. So you you go from this hardworking guy in the infancy of making YouTube videos, you're racing the NUE series and winning it, uh, to having this huge following on YouTube and on social media, and you're a participant in Lifetime Grand Prix. Um, for a lot of people, like each year, that there's that huge improvement, kind of maybe not like... Uh, well, you were seeing improvement as a bike racer too, huge improvements. But a lot mm -hmm. of people would find anxiety and stress each like time it ratchets up. As you, you know, you think about the NUE versus Lifetime Grand Prix, and no offense to people trying to win the NUE, but it's it's a different ball game, or it was a different ball game than mm -hmm. trying to win the Lifetime Grand Prix. So, do how do you manage those expectations? I guess is my first question, and then. You seem to put out a vibe a lot that you don't really care what people think about you. You're just going to do what Dylan wants mm. to do. And where does that come from? So I guess managing expectations and then kind of this, I don't, I don't give an F personality. Like, where does that come from? Because I think a lot of people list, like, that's a big reason people respect you so much is you just don't care. Mm -hmm. And not in a, like, middle finger kind of mm -hmm. way, but just in a, like, no, nah, I'm just going to do what I do. Sure. Sure, Yeah. I think that some of that comes about with uh, some of the weird antics that I do with my bike for sure. setups. Uh, for <laughs> for example, you know, everybody at Leadville is on a traditional mountain bike, but I'm putting drop bars on my mountain bike. And by the way, I'm not the first person to do that. Right. There have been others to do that, but it's sort of just, I guess, that people who follow me on the equipment side know that I'm all about I'm all about chasing the marginal gains and I don't care if it looks stupid or if it makes me look like a try hard. I am a try hard. I try hard at bike racing. So, and I'm unapologetic about being a try hard. So, 
Um, yeah, what, what was the first managing, part of the question? Managing again? expectations. Sure, yeah. So the life... The Lifetime Grand Prix comes along, and um, I at the the when I first applied, I wasn't sure if I would make it in because there were rumors about who was applying and how it was going to be the best riders, and I was like, I don't know if I'm the one of the best riders or not. But I did make it in that first year, and I saw that list of riders, and I I was like, man, this is going to be this is going to be a challenge. This is the best. I, the rumors were correct. This, these are the best racers in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, it's not going to be easy. And even though I was primarily focused on the NUE series in the early part of my career, I, I had raced Keegan and Russell and Howard Gratz before, and they completely, they probably didn't even know I was in the race. I was so far behind them. I mean, they smoked me by so much, right? So it's not it's not like I was going up against these these guys for the first time in my life and I knew that it was not going to be easy and so I was I guess you could say I went from a big fish in a small pond with the NUE series where with the NUE series the competition that's in the NUE series uh I was if I was going to an NUE race I was the goal was to win uh, and I was almost expecting at a certain point to win the race. Um, it didn't always happen. I mean, you know, sometimes Jeremiah Bishop shows up and <laughs> there's nothing you can do about yep. that. But um, to going to the Lifetime Grand Prix and knowing that not only is the win probably not in the cards for me, but even getting a top 10 would be an amazing day for me like to even break into the top 10 with this crowd is that would be it, it, it a top 10 f for a fan is just like ah who cares but for for a racer at at the level that i'm at it's like a career defining result um against against that caliber of riders so yeah i mean i there was definitely a shift in in my expectations and i think that that it's not like it happened overnight because i had already been making the shift over to gravel and gravel was already more competitive than the nua series was even even back before the lifetime grand prix um and it's only gotten way more competitive since uh, i kind of talk about this a little bit on my instagram and in my last video on youtube i talked about it the the level in U.S. gravel just continues to go up, and it kind of makes me wonder when we're going to see the plateau, if we're ever going to see the plateau. Um, because the difference in the level in the Lifetime Grand Prix in 2022, when they first had it, versus 2023, it was a night and day difference. And I don't, I don't think fans realize that sometimes and i don't even think that people in the lifetime grand prix realize that when i see some of my fellow competitors post about how you know another disappointing result and i look at the result from previous years and they went 10 minutes faster i'm like you know i know you didn't get the result on the results sheet that you want but you're faster than you've ever been yeah. so um do you think do you think yeah, some, of, do you think a, some <laughs> of that perspective for you comes from like 
you are so analytical about the science and so you're looking much more at things like mm -hmm. oh average power or like uh, you know some of those like gold standards that you know you have taught all of us to look at rather than looking at a place sure yeah i i think that probably is the case if i had to if i had to guess i mean i am a very data-driven and analytical person and some people are much you know th there are certain people who much more race on emotion and they and there's nothing wrong with that i mean those are some of the most exciting racers to watch but i think that that you know the difference for me is that if i for example at leadville if i go it's the same course every year if i get a faster time and have a higher average power that's a win for me that means i've improved and i'm happy about that and if even if i'm not as high on the results sheet as i would like to be i realize that i've improved and that you know that brings me satisfaction about the race whereas i think there there are a lot more racers that are in the camp of oh i was 10th place last year but this year i'm 15th i'm a failure right you you mentioned that you are kind of a try hard and you proudly say that i've heard mm -hmm. you mention on the other podcasts you have kind of an obsessive personality which is probably why you've fallen mm -hmm. into science so hard but as you think about you do have that obsessive personality it's helped you become a better bike racer it's obviously helped push your youtube channel because that's kind of helped guide it but how have you being obsessive about things can also be negative when we talk about mentalities. Mm -hmm. So how have you kept that in check or how have you kind of managed to direct it so specifically in positive ways? Yeah. Um, I mean, I haven't always been able to do that. I was actually in a recent Instagram post. I talk about how I, I overtrained myself at the beginning of this year. Uh, I just didn't take enough recovery after a big block that I did uh, at the beginning of this year. And I'm constantly trying to find that line of too much versus too little, but that's nothing, that's nothing new for me. Um, I mean, my obsessive personality has pushed me to the point of overtraining probably every single year that I've been a bike racer. So since I was 15 years old, I think I've been to the point of overtraining at least once a year, every single year. Um, and every time you do that, you, you learn a little bit sure. about yourself, right? So, so there were probably some years where I was chronically overtrained almost the entire year. And I just learned that that was not, that wasn't a good way to operate. Um, and I think that, uh, probably from a training sense, a lot of elite level bike racers can relate to that because a lot of elite level bike racers are obsessive about their training. Um, to the point where they they cancel social engagements because you know they didn't train enough one day or something they need to go train more um i i think that i i'm obsessive about training but i'm also obsessive about the equipment um or at least i've i've come to be more obsessive about the equipment i think that i sort of have this realization that there is a unfortunately there is a genetic ceiling that people have including myself uh i'm i'm quite fortunate that my genetic ceiling is up at a pretty high level but it's not as 
I mean, no one's is as high as they would like it to be. Everybody would like their genetic ceiling to be higher than it is. And so I start thinking about, well, well, what is in my control? Um, you know, obviously my training is in my, in my control, but maybe that can only take me so far. Well, you know, I could be more aerodynamic than everyone else. I could have a more efficient drivetrain than everyone else. I could have faster tires than everyone else. Um, and maybe if I add all those little bits up, then I can, I can reach a higher level than my body otherwise would allow me to. So, yeah. And everybody should know Dylan has transitioned in us into the next question, like three times today. It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with where we're going. Uh, my next question is on here and it, uh, you know, I would kind of be remiss to not dive into the nerdery with you here. And so we were going to get into genetic ceilings. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you've talked about genetic ceilings on your coaching podcast, the matchbox podcast, and mm-hmm. you just talked through how you think about genetic ceilings. And it is really clear looking at your results last year, even though, you know, all your homies on the Bonk Bros podcast want to tease you about being like captain 17th place. Like your performances really kept improving from the year before. And in some cases, like massively. Mm-hmm. So you, you haven't hit that point yet. But when you're working with the athletes you coach, um, are you having that same conver- type of conversation with them about, okay, you maybe have hit your genetic ceiling or you are still you've hit that age point where you start to drop off. Now we got to look at tires. Now we got to look at aerodynamics, all those kinds of things. What do those conversations look at look like? And when you think about, you know, maybe you hit the peak here, but have you thought about personally, like you get to be 40 years old or 45 years old and it starts to fall off. What does that conversation with yourself look like? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So, um, I want to be very careful to not promote using genetic ceiling as an excuse to not train or to not do what you need to do to be a fast bike racer. Um, You know, yes, we all have a genetic ceiling, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't that you shouldn't try to see where that genetic ceiling is. And I would argue that that the vast majority of people are nowhere near their genetic ceiling. Uh, genetic seal being at your genetic ceiling would imply that you've, you've done everything right. And you've been training for years doing everything right. You, you haven't overtrained um, every year since f- age 15. <laughs> right. So uh, this would imply that your nutrition is perfect. Your sleep is perfect. Your recovery is perfect. You're training as much on the bike as you possibly can um, and still recovering and everything everything is perfect. I, I think that probably 99.999% of people don't fall into that category, right? So the whole conversation about genetic ceilings really, it, it applies to very few people. And to your point, it, it might not even apply to me because from looking at last year, it, it seems as though I haven't even hit it yet, uh, at 20, I'm 29 years old now. So, but I, I do recognize that I'm probably getting close and especially at the age that I'm at, I'm, I'm probably getting especially close. Um, so, but I, I don't want that to be a deterrent for, for athletes and athletes that I coach. Uh, so most of the time, in fact, I don't think I've ever had this conversation with an athlete where I tell them, 
you're at your genetic ceiling, so let's not even bother talking about training. Let's just talk about your tires and your yeah. chain. Well, and, and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it because like, it has mm-hmm. been discussed on the Matchbox pod. And I think some people will hear that and be like, oh, no, like, what What if I have or what if I haven't or, you know, and the reality is it doesn't really, it, it's a hypothetical. Um, Dylan, where can people mm-hmm. find you if they need to or if they want to learn about, this could be a long list here, learn about coaching, uh, <laughs> listen more to you, find you on social media, find you on YouTube. Let, let's see if you can hit all of them here. All right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, my YouTube channel is just my name, Dylan Johnson. That's also my Instagram. Although my last name is spelled weird. It's spelled J A W N S O N on Instagram, not on YouTube, just on Instagram. Um, and then as, as far, I, I'm also on the bonk bros podcast. Uh, which is not coaching related, but if you are interested in more coaching related content, we also have the Matchbox co- podcast. And um, if you're interested in actually getting a coach, Ignition Coach Co., um, you can go to the Ignition Coach Co. website, sign up there. Uh, Ignition Coach Co. has an Instagram page. I don't know. Let's see. What else am I missing? Uh, there is a backwards hat Dylan Instagram page that I never post on, but <laughs> you can follow that if you want. Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe give my new team Felt United a follow. <laughs> yeah, no, this is awesome, man, and I think you got all of them. And seriously, folks, go go follow along with some of that content because there's really great stuff out there. Um, stuff that has altered how I look at coaching and I've, uh, I've been doing this for a long time, but, um, yeah, it's really good and it's science-based and you won't be disappointed. So Dylan, thank you so much for being on today. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. This was fun. Dylan Johnson, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you're looking for more content, head over to the Stable Cyclist YouTube channel where we are wrapping up the bankruptcy bike build, a series where we ripped the bike down to its bare frame and rebuilt it using pretty much only parts from companies that are now bankrupt within the industry. All the while talking about mental health, particularly my story of having bipolar disorder. You can also find me on Instagram at The Stable Cyclist. Finally, the Stable Cyclist Podcast is a twice-monthly show focusing on long-form conversations about bikes, mentality, and when the situation arises, even mental health. Have an amazing day. Thanks for listening. And most importantly, remember you are loved.